Welcome to the Political Philosophy Podcast. I'm Toby Buckle. The episode you're about to listen to is a one-part solo episode on the Liberty Principle, or sometimes called the Harm Principle, and the general conception of freedom that we find in John Stuart Mill. And in contrast to what I see as the sort of perhaps mainstream view, which is that it's an interesting work, but with many significant failings, I'm going to argue that the liberty principle and the conception of liberty that underpin it still make total sense today, and in fact are really good bits of political philosophy. And in doing so, I'm going to try and talk about what I think makes something a good work of political philosophy. Um, So apologies for um, not having had many new episodes out recently. Had a lot of stuff going on in my life, and I've also, I'm going to do a very slight teaser, been working on a really big and really exciting project that has emerged from the podcast, and that I'm going to be announcing in the next few days. So watch this, watch this, uh, watch this space. Um, watch my Twitter or whatever or Facebook. Um, I'm gonna have something I'm very excited to to share with all of y'all very soon. So with that as a bit of a teaser, let's get straight to this week's episode. Um, I'm not gonna do a big introduction. I think it's a fairly self-contained episode. And, you know, let me know if this is the sort of content you like. The podcast has definitely evolved from, you know, shorter, frequent interviews to sort of infrequent, longer think pieces. Um, I'm just sort of going on feedback that I've got and, like, what episodes get the most downloads, and it does actually seem like the solo ones are more popular, which kind of surprised me, honestly. Um, But that's what people have been requesting and listening to. But tell me what sort of balance you want, and I do aim to sort of get more out there in the future, like I say. I've had a lot of stuff on, and there's a thing which is coming soon, um, which I think will make sense of what else I've uh, been working on. Um, But apart from that, let's get straight to it. You'll know, or long-term listeners will know, I love discussing John Stuart Mill, so I just took the opportunity to do a a solo episode on some just classic political philosophy stuff, you know, get back to our roots. Um, Apart from that, if you like this, please do share the episode on the social media, recommend to friends, and if you're able to support financially, consider contributing on Patreon. Always appreciate that, and genuine big thank you to anyone who does sponsor the show. You are genuinely making it possible because we don't do any advertisements at all, and all of the costs associated with this are covered by listeners. So big genuine thank you to everyone who supports the show, either financially or by sharing and helping it getting out there. Apart from that, let's get straight to it. This is Harm and Liberty in J. S. Mill.
What does it mean for something to be a good or a bad work of political philosophy? Say we're examining an object, a, a text, an oral argument, a podcast, even. We'll often come to some sort of evaluation of it. We'll say, well, so-and-so here really succeeds. This, this, this is convincing and persuaded, or this perhaps more cynically validates the views I had going into this. Or often, we'll look at that same object and we'll say, that this fails, this doesn't work, this isn't a good work of political philosophy. Well, what makes it one or the other? To put it perhaps in traditional philosophical terms, in virtue of what can we say that something is a good or a bad work of political philosophy? Put a pin in that question, because I think when I ask it, you'll immediately jump to something, uh, clarity of argument, um, logical rigour, persuasiveness, um, the, the, does the argument track some underlying core ethical truth? Does it make sense of and harmonise our moral and ethical intuitions? I think you'll jump to something, and that's fine. What I'd like to do in this piece is try and walk through how, just in my current state of thinking, I'm making sense of that question. And it's actually not a question that gets asked a whole lot, is it? Which is kind of interesting. So let's give this a specific, concrete instance. On liberty. I think basically I've formed this at least roughly. You know, if you're listening to something called the Political Philosophy Podcast, I think you probably at least heard of John Stuart Mill's On Liberty. I, I suspect probably a good number of you have read it. Um, is this a good or a bad work of political philosophy? Well, opinions differ. I think there is something I'm going to think of as like the conventional view, or perhaps the sort of overall sort of median opinion of political philosophers and intellectual historians and theorists when they read that work, which is kind of like it's a B-minus work. It's definitely got some strong points, but it's also kind of plagued by a lack of clarity, um, and the, the, once you really sort of interrogate it rigorously, a lot of the distinctions and arguments don't hold up, and that, like, somehow the sum is... the whole is less than the sum of its parts. That's a point of view, and I'm going to sort of work through the arguments for that point of view in this episode. Um, my point of view is different. I think it's a work that largely succeeds. I think it's a good work of political philosophy. Um, and what I'm going to do is I found an essay that I think really well summarises the mainstream interpretation of Mill as partially successful, partially unsuccessful. And I'm going to give you my view. The essay I'm taking this from is uh, by an anonymous blog on political philosophy called Aquarusa. It's a good blog, you should check it out, and I'll link to the article in the show notes. So when I read a chunk from it, you can read it along, or perhaps you might even want to read the whole article first before you hear my discussion of it. 
And one thing you might get from this is, well, you might think I'm just dangerously misguided on all of this, and that clearly I shouldn't be in the business of talking about political philosophy at all. More optimistically, um, you might leave the episode thinking, well, you know, I guess I had kind of had that view of Mill and the Harm Principle and on liberty, um, but maybe I'm persuaded by Toby's view. Now, that might happen. Um, let me know. But as always, I think sometimes it, it's much more interesting philosophically to try and sort of dig underneath an argument and sort of push and poke around and try and sort of dig out not just like what are the contours of the disagreement, but why are people disagreeing? And I say that because I think I've been playing this over in my head for a few days, and I think what's causing the view which I'm the sort of consensus view or the sort of majority opinion on on liberty to diverge from mine is I think my answer to the question of what makes a work a good work of political philosophy at least implicitly is different. It's not even to say mine's right but I think working through this case of like you know in the specific is this a good or a bad work of political philosophy? What you'll hear as I sort of outline the arguments um, from this um, anonymous blog, Aquarusa, and I outline my own, is you'll hear us appealing to different standards. And I think that's interesting to go and think, okay, well, what does that mean? What does that look like? Why are we appealing to one set of standards and not another? Because that's a pretty darn consequential question when you think about it, right? Like, I, I've put it in a way that makes it seem very big and abstract and, like, you know, what are our standards of proof or, like, you know, we're really getting into the meta stuff here. But if you think about it, like, political philosophy, you know, as Keynes said, the world is ruled by little else. Like, ideas matter. And whether or not we endorse ideas matter, this is, like how we should be moral and how we should live together in society and, like, how we should organise our governments. Like, the answers to these questions matter. So if someone comes along and says, well, here's my set of answers, it, how we would decide is this a good or a bad set of answers seems pretty, <laughs> pretty important to me, right? Um, so... What's Mill's answer? Well, let's just zero in on probably the idea that Mill is known best for, which is the liberty principle. Sometimes called the harm principle, sometimes people want to separate those out. Mill gives us a few different formulations, and there's a great deal of ink spilled on are these like formulations coherent with each other, and if so, like how do they gel together, but I'll just give you the most famous one from at the introduction of On Liberty, quote, the only purpose for which power can be rightfully exercised over any member of a civilised community against his will is to prevent harm to others, end quote. So, to paraphrase, inelegantly, 
you can only coerce people to prevent harm for others. And as Mill will go on to argue, that coercion can be both sort of legal coercion, you know, passing a law to say you can't do that. It can also be social coercion, prevailing opinion. Um, you, you can't um, bully or shun or even really exercise moral judgment except for to prevent someone harming others. And I think the way to think about what Mill's trying to do with this principle, certainly what Mill himself thought he was trying to do with this principle, is reconcile an idea of freedom, an idea of individual freedom, freedom as autonomous choice-making, um, self-development, self-realization, to, 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 to flesh out that ideal of freedom and to reconcile it against other goods that we care about, like social welfare and uh, protecting people. And he's trying to sort of form like a contour between the two so that we can sort of get the most that we can out of both. So, is he successful in that? Well, we haven't looked at all the arguments yet, um, and I'm not really even going to run through all of the arguments, but is he successful? Well, opinions differ, right? Um, so, the essay um, by Aquarusa that I'm going to be using basically sums it up this way. This is the too long, didn't read. Quote, On Liberty makes some insightful points relevant to free speech and social deviance more generally, although its analysis is shallow and falls short of being able to provide satisfying answers about how to arrange society to protect free speech. End quote. That's, like I say, not an uncommon view of the Liberty Principle and Mill's project more generally. I'm going to sort of argue a writ large, writ small here. The writ small is the liberty principle. I think when you run through why people think it sort of falls short and why I think it doesn't, I think that difference will also apply to the picture of overall values. Does Mill's description of freedom in which the liberty principle is in service of, does that land or not? Is it good or bad political philosophy. And I don't want to be too, you know, what do idiots say on the internet, white knighting. I don't want to be too, like, white knighting mill here. I think sometimes some of the most annoying work in this field is done when someone criticises a historical figure and someone else rides in to defend them and say, no, no, you just don't understand the details and whatever, and haven't you read Kant in the original German and that, right? Um, so there's definitely areas where Mill's arguments do fail, and I mean, my god, don't take him at his word on empire and colonialism, right? Um, but I, I actually just do think the liberty principle lands, and I do think this, this vision of freedom in which it is in service um, lands. So I'm going to make that case. I, I also think it's worth noting a possible distinction on how you can read texts in the history of political thought 
um, I think about it as the difference between a historical read of the text and a theological read of the text. So is the main question we're asking, what did the historical John Stuart Mill intend to sort of mean by this particular utterance? Or is the question, what is this system of values and is it useful for us today? Can it inform our morality today? Does it, to, to quote the Akurusa essay, provide satisfying answers about how to do X, Y, or Z in the world? Those are a bit different questions, and I think we're both on the theological side of it. Like, what meaning can we take from this? And those those will get you different answers. So, to give an example from this, I sort of got this distinction by thinking about interpretation of scripture. So, the, to take take the New Testament, right? Um, what were Jesus's last words? I think the answer to that question will depend on if you're in the historic mode or the theological mode. So in the theological mode, you would probably go with um, Father into thine hands I commend my spirit, which is in the Gospel of John. If you're in the historic mode, I think you'd go with um, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, which is in the Gospel of Mark. Because well, I'm not going to do a whole episode on New Testament historical criticism, but if you're looking at it theologically and you're looking like, what's the sort of moral guidance that this document or set of documents is offering me for how to live my life, then into thine hands I commend my spirit just matches up better with the vision of who Jesus is and why his life was important and why his death was important. Um, it, it's just much more congruent with that. And I think that is that that's why that that is actually the general theological take. Um, if you're asking historically, I'd appeal to some slightly different criteria. I'd say, well, Mark is the much earlier gospel. So maybe that gives us reason to think it's more historical. Also, it's one of the very few times in the Bible that the Aramaic that Jesus originally spoke is cited, Eloi, life Sabachthani. I probably butchered that one. But so the reason that it's cited in Aramaic in a Greek text, does that mean that it's sort of more authentic because they've remembered the real world words? Maybe. I think there's also just like a plausibility argument, like... My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Just, to me at least, sounds much more like the words of a dying man. The, the sort of, into thine hands I commend my spirit, is much more magisterial and sort of in command of the situation in a way. But here's the point. I don't think either of those answers are wrong. I think it's just like you ask a different question, you get a different answer. And I mention that because... I think in a lot of these arguments, you can deviate away a bit from what the actual historical figure is saying without it being a bad argument. So, you know, a lot of times when I'm discussing this particular sort of variety of liberalism of which I'm an adherent, I'll sort of say, yeah, think about it like this or apply this framework to it, and I'll make arguments that are not there in the text. Right? 
as a way of explicating those arguments and showing how this system actually is relevant, or it's, it's a good system theologically, you know, in terms of creating, not in a religious sense, but like in terms of the sort of moral blueprint for how we should live our lives. Um, those sorts of moves wouldn't be valid is that if I was trying to do just a more objective analysis of like what did this actual person in history say. That's not to give yourself a complete free reign. You still have to be in contact with the text. You still have to allow it to inform you rather than just going to it with your own views to like validate whatever you thought going in. Um, but we are talking like, what does this mean today, I think, in terms of this question of what makes it a good or um, a bad text? We're asking, is this good or bad? theologically in this case. If I was asking, is something a good or a bad read as a sort of historical reconstruction of a person, I think the question would be very different and we'd be thinking about very different criteria. We're asking the normative questions here of, is this normatively good or bad? And I just think that's a really important distinction. That often gets that often gets missed. So, um, is it good or bad? Well, going on with the Aqua Rusa essay, I might, I might even be saying that wrong. I'm not an expert on Latin pronunciation, so correct me there. But going on with that essay, the author writes, "Quote: The author proposes that we should evaluate whether societal." parenthesis, social and government action is permissible by having a concrete principle, namely that society and government can only intervene when an individual's behaviour brings harm to others, not the individual themselves. Good start. This is promising. But one thing troubles me. It relies on people agreeing what harm is and what kinds of harm are worth tolerating if it means increasing personal liberty. And these types of disagreements go right to the core of the debate over free speech and its limits or lack thereof. End quote. I think this is, you see what I mean by the sort of um, mainstream view? I think a lot of the time, when you read secondary texts, or you listen to lectures on John Stuart Mill, or people sort of give their, like, first impression, or, you know, considered impression, of having engaged with the text. Um, you get to, to summarise, it sounds good, and it seems like a good first pass, but th there's no specificity in what's meant by harm. Like, Mill doesn't really provide you with, like, the X, Y, Z, the sort of necessary and sufficient conditions. And sort of the whole thing just, if the whole thing rests on on the word harm, and you don't really provide what you mean by it, that's just such a shaky foundation that the whole thing collapses. So here's what I think. I think that's technically true, but I think it's evaluating the principle in the wrong way. Um, I don't think what the harm principle is trying to do, and I think explicitly it's not trying to do, and I think in chapter four he tells you explicitly this is not what he's trying to do with it, is comprehensively answer 
every social and political question in advance. I don't think that's what the harm principle does. I don't think that's how we should think about what it what it does. Um, so just as a side note, um, you know I'm not going to get long-time listeners at least will know I'm not going to get through this without referencing essential contestability, but I'll keep it brief because I don't think my argument depends on it. But um, I can't help noting that saying <laughs> something relies on people agreeing what this term means is a criteria of failure, when, like, people will never agree on what these terms mean. Like, if Mill's not going to get people to agree on what harm means, therefore he fails, then, then any political philosopher fails. I think, though, what the argument is, is not that Mill can get everyone to agree, it's that um, he himself doesn't seem to agree. He himself doesn't provide a, a, a clear definition that would allow us to at least know what Mill meant. You know, we might not get the rest of society to agree to it, but could 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 we, dear John Stewart, at least have a starting point? I think that's the argument. Um, yeah, just I'll I'll try and limit my essential contestability nitpicks. It's annoying. Um, here's how I think we should think about it. Think about how rules function in a legal system. Because legal systems, we tend to think of in a sort of fairly, as fairly like objective type of things. Like, it's not just personal opinion, whether or not someone's guilty or not, right? The, the, there should be a structure for how, there should be standards in place. You know, we should have to adjudicate beyond reasonable doubt or something like that. Um... So just as an, a rough, imprecise analogue, take something like what are the rules governing when and when not a confession is admissible in court? You know, say someone's been arrested for a crime and they tell the, the police, yeah, I did it, I confess. Are you allowed to share that information with a jury? Well, usually, right, but there are some circumstances in which you wouldn't be. I'm not an expert on criminal law, by the way. This is just, like, something that occurs to me as an analogue. One rule that you might imagine is that if in the interviewing of a suspect there was violence used or threat of violence, in order to secure that confession, then it's not admissible in court. To give a concrete instance, if it were discovered that someone only confessed because the police beat it out of them, then in a well-functioning judicial system, you would say, that's not admissible, we're not going to share it with the jury, and, you know, if that's what your evidence is, case dismissed, or you'd have to provide some additional evidence, right? Now, just that rule, confessions are inadmissible if obtained using violence or threat of violence. Let's just parallel that with the liberty principle. I think at a first pass, like the liberty principle, you could go, yeah, that's a good rule, right? And by which I, I guess we sort of mean as that is a good functional way 
of preserving or maximising various sorts of moral goods that we have reason to, to care about. And if you produced arguments, you know, to that effect, that this, you know, max, does indeed maximise those moral goods, you might say that's a good work of legal political philosophy in arguing for that principle, right? But notice I've not defined terms in giving that to you. I haven't told you what I mean by violence or by threat, right? But in spite of the fact that I haven't really nailed it in, if you were on a jury and I gave you that principle and asked you to adjudicate some cases, I think you'd easily be able to sort it out nine times out of ten. Let's just say for the sake of argument that you have perfect information. So say there's multiple video cameras capturing every interaction that the police have with this with people while they're interviewing them. And I say, okay, you're a judge, you're a jury, you're someone who has to make an evaluation here. Um, you know, here's one, and I just show you a picture of the police asking some basic questions and the dude just going, yeah, I did it. I, I stole the car. Yeah, I did it. Yeah, fine. I confess. And then, okay, clearly in. Um, then I show you um, the police just wailing on a dude, and you go, okay, clearly out. And then even, I think, on threat, which is a little more subjective, you know, I think nine times out of ten, you'll be able to see something is ruled in, clearly in, or clearly out. It's not true by definition. You're not applying a technical criteria. But it's just kind of obvious, right? In a similar sort of way to elephants are larger than mice. Like, there's some level of judgment going on there. But most people, most of the time, will reach the same conclusion on most cases. I think the liberty principle's a bit like that, right? In the, it's a way, it's a standard that we can apply to cases. And there will be grey areas, just as there will be grey areas with the sort of violence, threat of violence thing. I think there will be some cases where, like, maybe an overt threat of violence wasn't used, but it was implied, and reasonable people without a, a, a more exact standard could differ, right? But I don't think that should blind us to the fact that it sorts through a lot quite quickly and on a first pass. I think most of the times that you look at an issue with the liberty principle, it actually does give you a reasonably clear answer. But what about the cases where it doesn't? That's more interesting, right? Let's go back to my criminal law case then. You know, if, if harm is too vague, you could say, just for my sort of admitting a confession example, well, threat is very vague. There'll be a lot of different understandings of, of what that word means. Um, does that mean that it's sort of a meaningless addition? And that if the whole rule is going to rest on us being able to interpret the word threat that it's kind of useless. Well, no. Imagine 
you changed a word. So imagine you instead of saying threat, you said discuss. You cannot use violence or discuss violence. And then you ran the same experiment. You gave a bunch of judges or juries or whatever perfect information. So they have videos of the full confession. And you say, rule these in or out, um, depending on whether they discussed violence or not. And I use, I'm being a bit silly here, because of course, if it's a violent crime, you have to discuss violence. But just, just to make the point, you'd get a radically different sorting if you changed that word threat to discuss. Or you could change violence. You could say, instead of violence, how different would it be if it was annoyance? You can't use violence to extract a confession. You can't annoy someone. Again, if you ask judges or juries or whatever to sort through, how different would it be if, if the criteria was annoyance, not violence, right? Apply that back to Mel. Like, does the fact that harm doesn't get a real tight, necessary and sufficient conditions sort of mean that that's, that that's just useless, it could mean anything? Well, words mean lots of different things, but they don't mean everything. They're quite, they're, they're constrained quite tightly in terms of, like, the recurring themes that they are sort of felt to summarise. So the contrast with the harm principle I would do is replace harm with disgust. You can only prevent someone from taking an action if that action you find that action to be disgusting, if that action disgusts other people, disgusts the sort of is the, the, the average person on the street, or it will be found disgusting by the average member of a society. Well, just like I said, the liberty principle, actually nine times out of ten, will give you a fairly straightforward answer. So will the disgust principle, but they'll give you... The sorting will be radically different. A lot of cases will get decided differently if you substitute harm with disgust. And I know that seems, like, really obvious, but I think it's worth running over, because... Word meaning exists in a sort of middle zone, right, where it's not absolutely clear in every case. But we're not just staring into the howling void either, right? <laughs> um, harm is doing quite a lot of work in that sentence, even though there will be cases where people will will disagree over what it means. And I actually think I'm, I'm going to come back to what I'm calling the disgust principle. I in some ways think the disgust, the disgust principle is the real alternative to the harm principle. It's not the paternalist principle. The paternalist principle, Mill contrasts with it and we contrast with it, because that's one that you can think up arguments for that sort of hold weight. I don't think, you know, arguing that disgust is a strong enough criteria to criminally prohibit something. People don't quite want to own that opinion. Nevertheless, I think in the reality of real-world political discourse, the disgust principle is one 
is one we appeal to all the time, and it is, in the reality of the world, the liberty principle's primary competitor, right? Anyway, harm, I think, does really lean you in a specific direction and help sort through the majority of cases quite clearly. So how would the, the view, the sort of mainstream theological read of Mill that I'm contrasting my view with, how would it answer that? Um, well, let's go back to the essay I've been quoting, which I think starts, I'm going to read you a couple of paragraphs that I think start by to some degree agreeing with what I've said, but then taking it in quite a different direction and reaching quite a different conclusion. So, quote, Using Mill's harm principle here to discuss this particular free speech issue is actually helpful and clarifying. Through the lens of the harm principle, you can see how free speech debates often ultimately boil down to debates over what counts as harm and how tolerable amounts of it, i.e. harm, liberty trade-offs, and which groups of people must bear harm. It illustrates that framing debates over free speech as an issue of liberty or freedom alone, as free speech opponents, proponents frequently do, is a bit misleading or obfuscatory because it leaves the consideration of harm out of the picture. However, one problem is that the harm principle seems simple in theory, but where many of the thorns of liberty and its defence truly lie. For example, Mill acknowledges that, quote, there are many who consider as an injury to themselves any conduct which they have a distaste for, end quote, which he does not believe is truly a harm. In other words, people's subjective ideas of what harm is come apart from what the author here considers to be the ground truth of what harm really is. The issue of defining harm also came up in Conflict is Not Abuse, where inflated claims of harm, like the one Mill points out, can be quite dangerous. Unfortunately, I still don't have a satisfying answer for how to define harm. End quote. So, in other words, like, harm is doing something here, and he does seem to be separating it out from the disgust principle, as I'm calling it. Um, and he will clearly has a direction he wants to take us, but it's just not clear enough, right? There's still going to be a lot of disagreement in practice. So to take the case, the sort of perhaps slightly silly case um, I've been outlining as, as a rough analogue of trying to decide whether to admit a confession or not, you could say, well, yeah, look, I agree. Like, the words threat and violence aren't doing nothing. They are quite useful often as a framework to think about this in. And you may even be right that nine times out of ten they give you a not incontrovertible but reasonably obvious answer. But what about that one time? Isn't that when we really need the rule to be quite clear? Because people are always going to agree that, like, just beating it out of someone's not okay. And they're always going to agree with, like, the person just walking in and confessing. It's the, gr you know, you're saying, Toby, that yes, there's a grey zone in the middle, but most time it's clear. Well, isn't the grey zone precisely the time when we need our rule to be clear? Aren't you sort of appealing to the wrong sort of standards 
for what makes a good or a bad argument. I actually don't think that's quite right. I think where the grey zone is will depend on your framing. What the borderline cases are, in the case of the criminal trial, will very much depend on if your standard is violence or annoyance. Like, the, 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 the bits where it gets tricky will change depending on what your framing is. So, um, in the passage I just read to you, um, the author says, ultimately boil down to. I, I think that's not quite right. It's as if the, the grey zone will always be the same, and the principle helps us perhaps see it a bit more clearly, but because it doesn't define harm, won't really solve it for us. It'll explicate the, the, the disputed ground, um, but without providing us a final answer. I would put it differently, more actively. The liberty principle boils these debates down to. It actively changes the discussion. It changes the parameters of the discussion. It provides a framework for the discussion, and it focuses our attention in the conversation on a particular aspect of it, on a particular set of issues out of a much broader possible range of issues. What it doesn't do, and I think may have been somewhat implied here, what it doesn't do is it doesn't show us what was always foundational. It draws our attention to a particular set of things on which we might disagree, and tells us that that's what we should be considering foundational, and asks us to reject other areas which we could potentially consider as foundational. So, to see this concretely, um, if instead of applying the liberty principle, we could apply the the discussed principle, would we say that what this principle shows is what these debates boil down to, ultimately, is what disgusts us? Not, not quite, right? I think often, when we have these debates, we do actually end up debating what disgusts us. So, for instance, to take various issues surrounding LGBT rights, I think what the conversation can become, people don't quite put it this way, but I think very much implied in their speech and in sort of the back and forth of the debate, is like, essentially, um, do we think there's something disgusting about gay sex or about transgender people or about gender nonconformity, right? And a lot of the time, I think... What people are actually saying, if you read between the lines, or sometimes just read the lines, is someone is saying, but gay sex is, like, gross, isn't it? Like, are you, are you okay with, with that? And you will notice how opponents of gay rights or transgender rights or whatever do seem to spend a lot of time bringing up the... the the, the sort of particulars of it, <laughs> as it were. Sometimes they're so obsessed with those particulars, one might not wonder if there's something else going on there, but that's a different story. 
And a lot of the time, what people on my side of the aisle will sort of seem to be saying is like, but gay sex is fine, gay relationships are fine, transgender people are fine. Now you can then, you could put it in a different way, you can put it in a, in a harm principle way, you could say two men or two women getting married isn't hurting, you let them be, but a lot of the time what the communication really seems to be is, I don't think this is disgusting, I think you're wrong to think this is disgusting, I think it actually reveals something bad about you, <laughs> that you consider this to be disgusting. And so I think a lot of the time we actually are having that debate within the framework of the disgust principle. I think there's some people who are, who do, we just have different intuitive reactions to this, right? And, you know, I'm not going to do like a whole genealogy of where those come from and are they innate or is it you know, structural forces or like sort of ideology or you know, you can you can really that that's a whole other podcast to to discuss that. But that is often in in the reality of political debate, I think the underlying substantive assertions. And what the liberty principle does is it comes along and says all of that is completely fucking irrelevant. None of that is what's actually foundational here. What's foundational is is there a, a, a direct and undeniable harm being done to other people? And, you know, historically, and I'll get back into this, the liberty principle, I don't want to say, like, <laughs> led to um, the legalisation of homosexuality. The historical story is a lot more complicated than that. But it was part of, it was one of the sort of rhetorics and frameworks of analysis that was definitely part of that story, right? Um, the liberty principle doesn't show us what's foundational. It asks us to consider certain, it demands that we consider certain issues as foundational. That's what it's doing. And I think the fact that the liberty principle is so consistently able to actually get people to make that mental jump is is the way it can focus our attention that way, and in practice how frequently it does focus our attention that way, is, is one of its great virtues. Like, this has been a consequential idea, because actually, I think something like the disgust principle is actually the historic norm. That's how most people, most of the time, have had these debates. Um, I don't think the liberty principle is some core, is a sort of formulation of some core impulse that all people throughout all of history have had. I think the norm is much more like, does this repulse us? You know, you can go all the way back to something like purity laws, right? Um, and what seems to be happening there is a sort of codification, a... Um, a sort of explicit writing out and mapping out of feelings of revulsion and disgust and, 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 a, and a sort of set of prohibitions organised around them, you can build a total social, legal and political vision on the foundations of disgust and revulsion. And many people have, and many people have lived under it, right? The liberty principle 
for all that we it seems really obvious. And Mill says, hey, yeah, this seems obvious. Then he goes on to say, but it's really radical. Because it is really radical. This isn't how most of us think politically most of the time. It's certainly not how, how most people throughout human history have thought politically most of the time. It, it's really forcing us to just shift the whole, the whole, we talk about shifting goalposts. The liberty principle just digs up the goalposts and puts them on a different planet. And its great genius is that it does so in a way that when people hear it for the first time, they go, okay, that makes sense. And they just switch. And then they're immediately, not all the time, of course, but a lot of the time, um, they, they immediately then start living on that other planet. <laughs> and it's, it is so radical in the course of human history. It is so radical. And I just think that's so cool that it's, it's like people, you know, those little adverts one on, on the internet, like one weird trick that all the doctors don't want you to know. <laughs> the Liberty Principle really is like that sort of like one weird trick. What do people call them? Life hacks? This is like a political rhetoric hack, right? People really respond to it. It has a lot of ideological cut through. Um, and I just think that's so cool. That's not to say it works all the time or you'll always, you know, get someone to agree with you using this. But but nothing will do that. Right. Nothing will do that. Um, and I just I think that's a great, like, argument for it. But notice what I'm doing there. Notice what I'm appealing to. I've completely jumped the fence and ran out the reservation by the way, I make it a point of principle that my metaphors in in or in, in this will always be off. Um, but you, notice what I'm doing. I'm I'm completely out of. Is this a clear, well defined definition that will provide us with clear answers in every case? I've just completely abandoned that as our criteria for judging if this is good or bad political philosophy. I'm using a completely different criteria here. I'm asking, like, does it work? What does it do? Let's see this thing in action, you know? And just to foreshadow my conclusion, there are many, many questions that we can ask of a decision-making rule beyond its internal coherence. We can ask, is it useful? Does it actually further the values that it's trying to maximise? Is it something that people are able to intuitively pick up and use on their own without prompting? Is it something that people have to be told to use and it has to be explained to them repeatedly? Or is it sort of like a software that you can just upload on people's brains and then they run with it? Because after all, let's be real, to take my... Um, getting a confession, torturing people to get a confession, was a required part of interrogation in many, many legal systems throughout history, and no doubt just made perfect sense to people, right? The rule that you don't do that now has acceptance and cut through, right? But it's not tracking some sort of universal ethical instinct that all people have. In many ways, it's a good rule because it has been able to instantiate itself in the world. It's good because I think there's a theoretical argument that it sort of furthers a set of values that we should care about. It's good 
because I think there's an argument that in, in actuality, when it's institutionalized, it actually does further those values. I, I, I also think there's an argument in the, that it's something that makes sense to people. It vibes with people. You know, you can say, well, look, you know, you, Toby, believe in essential contestability. Does that mean that um, your the, the value of freedom could just mean anything? Could you just say um, freedom is having 27 orange and yellow striped zebras? And the best answer you can give back to that is, sure, you can say that. No one will listen to you. It won't do any work in the world. You will be wasting your time. But yes, you can say that. It's just like, why would you? <laughs> you know? Um, and that's much more how I think about it. But what would, what would the response be? The, the, the response would be, well, you're changing the goalposts, to which I would say, yeah, I'm, I'm changing the goalposts. Um, I think these are, are better goalposts. And um, to which someone could say back, no, they're not, right? Like, having <laughs> clarity of definition is really important. And you could argue it for that sort of just intrinsically, we want to understand this thing, we want to get to some, like, core ethical truth. But you could also say, even by your criteria, Toby, we want to be clear about what we're saying, right? Like, you know, we want to provide people, you know, we being people who are constructing a political theory, a political philosophy, we want, we don't want people to get lost in these grey areas. We want them to be able to sort of solve these problems, and the liberty principle just doesn't do that in a satisfying way. So let's let's take this on directly, because so far I've been arguing that it's not as big a problem that the liberty principle doesn't end with an absolute, here are the necessary and sufficient conditions of harm. The, the, the degree to which that, of, that is made out to be a problem is overstated. That's sort of an argument I've been developing. And then I've just sort of gone off and said, but look, it does all of these other amazing things that we should care about. And just providing a clear definition really isn't the, 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 the be-all and end-all here. But let, let's just think about this for a minute, though, because um, there's another way I can go, which is to say it's actually good that it doesn't provide us with a clear definition. The, the, the principle, the decision-making rule is stronger for it. Jump back to my analogy of the criminal case and when you can extract a confession. Okay, this is a rule that works well, in a number of senses, it does do the good things that you describe. However, by your own admission, there will be the one time out of ten there is a genuine grey area. And good liberal thinking people who are well-intentioned and want to reach the right answer will disagree. Or maybe even not know what they want to think at all. Right? Would it not, you know, it's granting all you say about how it's good, would it not be stronger still if we really locked in what violence and what threat of violence meant in this scenario? So we just removed all ambiguity, right? Let's just think about this. Um, 
You can't use violence. What about if the suspect, after confessing, because they're so stressed out, has a heart attack and the detectives provide CPR? CPR is pretty violent. If you had, like, a specific definition that said, like, you can't put hands on the person, right, like, you can't physically touch them, then does does that mean they can't give CPR? Or by giving CPR, they render the confession ineligible in court? Well, I think what people would want to say there is, well, okay, but then you've got a general rule that says um, you can't put hands on the person, that's part of your definition. But then you sort of have an exemption to that, which says, except in a medical emergency. Okay, you see what my next question is going to be? My next question is going to be, what constitutes a medical emergency? Do, and then you could maybe spell out every single case, you know, and even then, you'd think of objections. Let's do another one. Um, threaten. Say you don't use any words that are threatening, but your body language and your physical behaviour towards the suspect, even if you're not touching them, is such as to create an expectation that there might be violence here. Say when you're asking questions, you're thumping the table loudly with your fist. You're punctuating certain words with a big fist slam. And you're doing so, obviously, to create the impression that, hey, you, you don't say what I want you to say and you're going to get hurt, buddy, right? Should that be allowed? Like, at a first pass, I want to say no, right? Like, you know, is he actually speaking? A th you know, you can communicate a threat many ways other than saying, do X or I will hurt you, right? That's obviously out. But I think certain forms of nonverbal communication would also be clearly out as well. So let's try and systematize it. There is a rule that says you can't use violent and threatening gestures. One, you know, X, Y, and Z examples of which X is you can't slam your table, your table with a fist, your fist on the table, right? Then, let's think about how that rule would get you in trouble. What if the detective taps the, you know, he's being perfectly lovely and reasonable, um, he's just offering the, the suspect a chance to explain themselves, the suspect is freely confessing, wants to get it off their chest. But the detective has a heart condition that gives her a nervous tremor in her hand. And as the person's talking, there's just a... Just, it just happens involuntarily, and they get a handle and they put a hand under the table. Does that then mean that confession is invalid? Surely not, right? So then you write it into the rule. You say, okay, you can't... <laughs> Slam. You can maybe tap the, the table, but not with more than so much amount of force. Um, or maybe there's like a medical exemption to this. Or you work through every one of those cases. You're not just going to have a long rule. You're going to have shelves and shelves on a library. And some criminal law does descend into this sort of pedantry. But actually, most most of the time, 
criminal law will sort of reach a point where it just says, okay, we've shown you roughly what we have in mind. You know, at a certain point, you are just going to have to use your judgment here. Um, and, and doesn't that just make sense? I mean, to the extent that you can think up definitions that will provide a clear guide to action, I can think up counterexamples to them. You know, we can keep playing this game all day. What am I quoting here? We can keep doing this. I can keep doing this all day. I feel like I'm quoting something there. But I can. I can keep doing this all day. And this is sort of sometimes what philosophers do, right? Because <laughs> they just keep on thinking up these counterexamples. And I'm not saying they have no value. I'm saying that surely our criteria of success isn't that you exhaust all possible counterexamples or you map it out in such a way as you have them covered in advance. Surely that can't be it. Right? But also, notice what's happening. As soon as I come up with some weird little counterexample, you immediately course correct in real time. Now, you're not doing so on the basis of applying a coherent definition that you sort of a priori have. You're making a revision to your definition using your judgment. You're doing it in real time. You know, when I say, what about the detective with a tremor? You don't go, okay, well, my definition is X, Y, Z. Let me apply that X, Y, Z to the detective who has a tremor in her hand. You say, okay, well, that, you know, in that specific case, the sort of spirit of what I'm trying to accomplish with this rule, you know, doesn't quite match the letter of how I've defined it, so I'll just shift the goalposts a little. My question is, if you trust yourself to do that, why don't you trust other people to do it? Why do, you know, if we're trying to create the framework for judges and juries to, like, interpret this rule, we trust ourselves to know when there'll be, like, a sort of a, a case that involves judgment. We trust ourselves to exercise judgment. Why don't we trust other people? Now, you can say, well, other people might have prejudices and interpret it badly, but, you know, if you think you're operating without prejudices, um, I've got news for you, right? And there's reasons, in fact, why we might want to allow the people who will be applying our rule to exercise a certain amount of judgment in doing so. For one thing, they're going to be more able to grasp the rule, to sort of gronk it, to um, to sort of agree with it and see it as valid, and as a consequence be able to instantiate it in the world if it's simple and easy to understand, right? They don't beat a confession out of people and don't threaten to do so. Anyone can wrap their head around that. In the same way, basically, yeah, anyone can wrap their head around the liberty principle. If you try and define everything in advance, you're going to end up with something that's unwieldy and, as a result, is actually harder to use and less successful. But also, and I think more importantly, the people who will be applying your rule have information that you don't. They have the full picture. They may well be, in fact, they will be, if the rule is implied often enough, in situations that you didn't envisage. You know, you run through all the possible counterexamples and what-ifs and so on to your rule. 
there's invariably going to be something that you didn't think of, and that thing, if you apply the rule often enough, will happen eventually. Also, not just like the small details of the case, but the big picture might be different. Society may be in a different place by then. Other aspects of the legal and political system may have changed. So, for instance, when to take the criminal justice case, when we first um, started having prisons, it was a generally accepted belief by most medical professionals that solitary confinement was good for people. The past is a scary place sometimes. I think we now pretty conclusively know that it isn't, and in fact it's so bad for people that is generally considered torture, although we still do it. But that not that just like a perfect example of, like, you, you want your decision-making rule to have a bit of flex to it. You want it to be able to adapt to new information, right? Because you're going to have to. New information is going to come up. One of my favourite Mill quotes is when he said, every age, having held many opinions, that future ages regarded as not only false but absurd. We think it's not only wrong, but like ridiculous, grotesque even, that people used to think that leaving someone in solitary confinement for two years was good for their mental health. I promise you, there are things we think now that people are going to look back on in a similar way. Right Now, that's not to say that history has a direction, that it always gets better, that we're on some sort of inevitable march of progress, just that we're pretty darn fallible, right? New information will present itself. Don't we want to build in to our rules a bit of an ability to sort of adapt to that? Put simply, the people applying your decision-making rule will know things that you don't. And... You, you can build that sort of inexplicitly. The way the legal system does it is it'll often do what's called a reasonable person standard. So instead of getting into all of these, like, what is a threat and so on, what the law will often do is sort of go through, this is sort of roughly what we have in mind. Here are some clear cases of threat being used. Here are some clear cases where it wasn't. But it won't map everything out in advance, and it'll then just say something like, a threat was used if a reasonable person would have concluded that they were in danger of violence. It'll just say something like that. Well, what does reasonable mean? What does reasonable mean? And the law just says, okay, buddy, just shut up now, okay? Stop. 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 It means a reasonable person. What does that mean? It means what it sounds like, okay? It means a reasonable person. It means you're going to have to look at it and just make a judgment. And I think basically the exact same thing can be said of the liberty principle. It's probably for the best that it really it doesn't lock in harm too precisely. Because, like all of Mill's work, the liberty principle is designed as something to be situated in time. It is aware of what its relationship is with the past. It, it is intended to be something of a radical shift in how we think about, how we assess, 
moral and political questions. What types of argument are valid in this space? Just as we might ask what types of confession are admissible in court, the liberty principle provides us with a framework for thinking about what types of arguments are admissible in political discussion. It asks us to discount arguments based on disgust, our own or other people's. It asks us to put those feelings to one side and focus on harms. And it doesn't always provide clear answers. That's not really the point of it, and indeed it's the genius of it. It's designed to be part of a framework in which human society can improve. And rather than having a really strict schema which will continually need to be updated, the idea is that the framework itself can absorb a certain amount of changing circumstances. And, you know, the Liberty Principle will, I mean, it'll pretty soon be 200 years old, and it's still something that we use, and is never really needed to have been revised, precisely because it has that, that built-in flex to it. I think that's part of the argument for it, in fact. So, to summarise, the idea that the liberty principle doesn't give us clear answers at all. I don't think he's right. I think it gives us clear answers in a lot of cases, but not all. And it does allow, because it is situated in time, that, that harm is a bit of a moving target. It is something that will need to be continually re-evaluated and discussed. And that is to the theory's benefit. And it's something that works. It's something that has done a lot of work in the world. And it's something that, that makes sense to people. Again, what's wrong with saying freedom is having this many yellow and orange striped zebras? Well, because your theories have to connect with the world in some way. And this one clearly does. It has, in the minds of many individuals and in societies at large, shifted our focus from the more normal questions we asked, does this disgust us, do we sort of feel that this is wrong, to focus on something quite different and much more specific. And it's good that it's done that, because that is a better decision-making rule. It's led to better outcomes where it has been used. Now, what do I mean by it's a better decision-making rule? it's led to better outcomes. I mean that it has furthered a core set of political values that I think are central to what we should consider political morality to be. So I, I mentioned earlier sort of a particular conception of freedom, a particular conception of society, and so on. The the claim that it's a good, one, I'm saying it's good because it's effective, I'm saying it's good because it provides a framework but not final answers, and I'm saying it's good because it's congruent with, both in theory and practice, um, a certain set of values that I think are good. Now, 
you know, as you can see, my argument can't just stand or fall by itself. If I want to be comprehensive, I then have to say, okay, I then need to talk about what those ultimate values that are being served by the liberty principle are, and I need to make an argument for them. Now, this is why I said writ large and writ small. I think the, the liberty principle is the sort of writ small case, and I gave you two accounts, sort of the, the conventional account and my account of two different views of it, one of which, the conventional one, says it's, let's just say, a bad, you know, an imperfect you know, piece of political philosophy. And I said, actually, it's a good piece of political philosophy. And what I tried to draw out there is that, at least implicitly, the difference is in the difference of standards that we're appealing to. So in the writ small case, the standard being appealed to is, does this have absolute conceptual definitional clarity? Does it provide an answer in all cases? Is it sort of like an intellectual sausage-making machine where you put in the ingredients and you get the outcome and you don't need to use judgment? Is that the right standard? And I've said, actually, the standard I choose to use is one that's located in time one that understands that things will change and evolve and develop, that we will be making rules for people to use who have more information than we do. Does it work well to help guide their actions towards furthering these sort of ultimate political goals? Does it work in theory? Does it work in practice? Is it something people can actually pick up and use? Or is it something that will always remain an, an, an abstraction? That's the sort of evaluative criteria that I'm bringing to the table. So that's the writ small case. What about the writ large case? What you know, you know, we, this is linked to an account of liberty, right? How do we assess if this is a good or a bad account of liberty? Now there, it gets much more <laughs> daunting, right? What? can we appeal to, to justify a foundational value? And when we do try and make a justification, what would make that a good or a bad justification? And I started with the writ small case, because I think a lot of the differences between how I'm evaluating the writ small case, the liberty principle, will also follow over to how we evaluate what are good or bad arguments in the writ large, the big picture, our overall values, which we're asking if the liberty principle furthers or not. Okay, so, thus concludes part one. Need an intermission or something? Take a pause, go get some refreshments. <laughs> um, that's part one. Part two, let's look at freedom itself. Um, I'm going to be just looking at freedom. I've argued elsewhere, I think, you know, the, the sort of Millite moral vision that I'm doing a sort of theological reconstruction of has other values beyond freedom in it. Um, and I'll touch on them, but my main focus is going to be on freedom. And I'm 
generally sort of open-minded with respect to freedom. I think it's something that has, as a value, fallen out of favour a bit on the political left in the last couple of generations. Um, if you think about social movements in the 50s and 60s, they would often be overtly tied to freedom. I'm thinking of, like, women's liberation, um, gay liberation movements, or if you look at the creation of welfare states, we call them welfare states, but the primary value that things like FDR's New Deal or the Beveridge Report reference is freedom, right? So it's not to say it can't be a left-wing value, but I think the contemporary political left is much more comfortable with justice, with rights, with welfare, with equality as sort of the ultimate political uh, values to which it appeals. Um, I also think and I don't have like an intellectual genealogy of this, the focus in contemporary political philosophy tends to be along those lines too. Uh, justice or equality tend to be the things that uh, we really uh, uh, wrestle over. And I'm sort of agnostic. It's like part of me wants to say I think freedom would be a better sort of starting point to think about these things. And I think the reasons why you, both political philosophers and sort of left-wing people in general, feel a bit uneasy with freedom in the modern world, um, I, I sort of feel like you're wrong. Or at least you're not seeing this part of the story that you're not taking into account. But at the same time... I do think you have to look at what works, and right now, like like I say, the left and political philosophy in general, freedom sort of isn't working for us for some reason. So I remain overall agnostic. What I would sort of want to put forward to you is it's at least worth considering thinking about freedom in a more sustained way and what a sort of freedom-grounded progressivism would look like as opposed to a justice or an equality-grounded progressivism. Um, and like I say, I think when I argue this, what you'll see is not just perhaps a difference of opinion or a difference of emphasis uh, between me and others on the left or people making sort of political philosophic arguments, um, but like I'm appealing to different things, which again is why I sort of did the writ small case first. So let's get back to the essay I've been citing. And I should say, I don't, it's anonymous, I don't know who the author of this essay is. I don't know if, if they do end up listening to this and you've made it thus far. Um, uh, I appreciate you listening to responses of your work. And like, let me just say, I'm not like trashing this or anything. I think it's a good essay. And um, like I say, it's probably closer to how most political philosophers think about this than the views I'm espousing are. So if if anything, you probably want to give a little more epistemic weight um, to this essay than you are to my analysis of it, because more people who thought in a sustained way about this, I think, agree with this. But um, I'm just saying, hey, this is another view. Um, I find it convincing. I'm not saying it's right in any, like permanent sense. I'm saying this is where my thinking is at, and it makes sense to me, awaiting contrary argument. Um, I'm not making the claim any more, more strongly than that. But 
let's go through this because I think again this summarizes quite well a lot of reservations that uh, people today have about freedom as something to ground your political philosophy on. So I'm just going to read you pretty much a whole uh, section. This is quite long, so you know you might want to read the essay first. Um, but quote: "I'm still trying to figure out freedom." I talked a bit about the different definitions of freedom that were laid out in private government, positive, negative, and republican. But unfortunately, despite the name and focus, the book doesn't actually specify what definition of freedom it is using within it. This is fine, however, because perhaps it is interested in different forms or ways of defining liberty, so it can still be helpful to provide a generic defence of liberty. One way of describing the type of liberty the author is interested in is perhaps a society that tolerates a diversity of thought and lifestyle, including ones that society largely agrees are incorrect, morally wrong, or harmful for a limited class of harms. It does, however, point out, and I agree, that freedom has a somewhat paradoxical or unintuitive or seemingly contradictory part of it. Quote from Mill, The aim, therefore, of patriots was to set limits on the power which the ruler could be suffered to exercise over the community, and that limitation was what they meant by liberty. End quote. Back to the essay. This is one of the properties of freedom that I find hardest to wrap my mind around. To secure freedom, you need to limit and prescribe the ability of certain powerful people to act. This is close to the Republican ideal of freedom. Freedom is non-domination. But of course, from the point of view of the people whose actions are being circumcised, that freedom sure doesn't feel like freedom. Freedom, therefore, one, depends on whose perspective is being taken, and two, it is not just evaluated at a snapshot in time, but over repeated interactions. Depending on whose point of view we are taking, and what window we are looking at, things that seem like freedom from one perspective look like tyranny from another, Take the examples mentioned in private government, like the one from Marx, at the time of signing an employment contract, the employer is freely entering a contract, and the employee is freely entering the contract. However, after the contract is signed, the employer is confident and happy, freedom, while the employee is sulking and obedient, unfreedom. In short, notions of freedom, in order to be useful, need to incorporate many things. One, a notion of power. Two, consistent and universal application to all people, i.e. all people's perspectives should be taken when evaluating a situation, when evaluating whether a situation embodies freedom or not. And three, a notion of time. Too often, people who discuss and even defend freedom fall short of this ideal, choosing to zoom in on tiny, atomistic acts, which they call freedom or unfreedom, from their own perspectives or the perspective of classes of people similar to themselves. 
This is why I don't really like appeals to freedom, even though I think freedom is an important part of human flourishing and something we should arrange society in order to seriously protect. There's too much room for ambiguity and ideal subversion, where people who defend freedom often mean the freedom of tyrants to govern with impunity and accuse those advocating restrictions on those tyrants' power, as Mill does, as being enemies of freedom. This is very frustrating, and it makes it tempting to throw away such a thorny, vague, easily inverted ideal like freedom altogether. It is dangerous to cease to care about freedom, but also dangerous to naively go along with everyone who claims to be defending it. End quote. So that was quite long. That was all from the essay. Back to me. Okay. So, here's what I think. I think that passage I just read you articulates quite clearly a lot of the unease a lot of people have with freedom, right? Not like they're uneasy with being free, but they're uneasy with um, putting it at the bottom or the top, depending on how you want to spatially visualise it, but sort of putting it at the centre, perhaps, is a better way of saying it. Put it at the centre of our political philosophy. And to just put it into my terms, which are a bit reductive, and the author of this piece might want to say, that's not really what I meant, and, you know, I, I, I appreciate that. I'm just using this as a jumping-off point. But that putting freedom at the centre of your political philosophy has liabilities that will make it bad political philosophy. And actually, I'm inclined to think the same properties of freedom that they, they identify actually are well-placed to make something a good political philosophy by putting it um, at the centre of. So there were a few points in there. Let's just go through them. Um, Mill doesn't offer a clear definition of of liberty. Um, I don't. Yeah, again, I don't mean to be white knighting Mill too much here. Like I say, nobody should be taking him too seriously about colonialism, right? Um, at the same time, I think Mill's pretty clear in in what he means by liberty. What he doesn't do is offer like a tight legal definition. In the same way as schemas of human rights often have this kind of here are the twelve principles type thing going on. But if you want a definition, I think you can do it in a sentence, which is pursuing your own good in your own way. That's a definition that Mill offers of freedom. Um, and I think there's a few components there that definitely take it beyond the sort of pure libertarian negative conception of freedom that I think a lot of people are rightfully uneasy about. Um, and in some ways, I think this essay is sort of re reacting against. Um, so own good, this is not a sort of morally neutral theory of being left alone. It's um, a theory which recognises that there are moral goods, but there's a pluralism of moral goods, and goods for people, things that are valuable to them, and that, you know, as Mill puts it, different people will have different things that, that make their life valuable, that make them happy, that create the conditions um, for their flourishing. And the other side is your own way. It's a developmental idea. 
it's the idea that our lives are enriched by us making our own choices. It's not just that we tend to make better choices than a ruling elite would make on our behalf, although Mill certainly believes that also. It's that the act of choosing, of deliberating, um, is itself valuable. Um, autonomy is valuable, both instrumentally and for its own sake. And we can call the condition of people, to varying degrees, being positively empowered to have that autonomy and ability to self-develop. We can call that freedom. So I'll just do a quote from Mill to, to sort of um, flesh this out. And this is sort of a rhetorical, almost um, literary um, sort of painting of, of what he had in mind. It's not like a set of necessary and sufficient conditions. He's sort of painting a picture with words. He was quite influenced by, like, the romantic poets and so on. He tried to really infuse his philosophy with that sort of, like, something a little over the top. I like it. Some think it goes a bit too far. Um, with that sort of quality of speaking both to the head and uh, the heart. Um, but this is from chapter three of On Liberty. Quote, he who lets the world, or his own portion of it, choose his life plan for him, has no need of any other faculty than the ape-like one of imitation. He who chooses his plan for himself employs all his faculties. He must use observation to see, reasoning and judgment to foresee, activity to gather materials for decision, discrimination to decide, and when he has decided, firmness and self-control to hold to his deliberate decision. And these qualities he requires and exercises exactly in proportion as part of his conduct, which determines is according to his own judgment and feelings is a large one. It is possible that he might be guided in some good path and kept out of harm's way without any of these things. But what will be his comparative worth as a human being? It really is important, important not only what men do, but what manner of men they are that do it. Among the works of man, which human life is rightly employed in perfecting and beautifying, the first in importance surely is man himself. Supposing it were possible to get houses built, corn grown, battles fought, causes tried, and even churches erected and prayers said by machinery, by automations in human form, it would be a considerable loss to exchange for these automations, even the men and women who at present inhabit the more civilised parts of the world, and who assuredly are but starved specimens of what nature can and will produce. Human nature is not a machine to be built after a model, and set to do exactly the work prescribed by it, but a tree, which requires to grow and develop itself on all sides, according to the tendency of the inward forces, that make it a living thing, end quote. So that's, like I say, a sort of almost quite romantic image of what he's after, but pursuing your own good in your own way is Mill's idea of freedom. It's, it's sort of a, it, it, it's a good that we possess because, you know, we're not machinery, 
we're living things that require to grow and develop ourselves on all sides. So a pluralistic, developmental sort of conception of, of the good life. And this is based on a moral good. This is something people get uncomfortable with. The idea is that, that, that like, liberalism should remain neutral. I think, sort of, I would interpret my theological read of Mill would say, liberalism carves out areas of neutrality. Liberalism would say, within certain domains, we should try and be neutral. We should try and have the state take a hands-off approach to many things, for instance, um, in the academy and universities and so on. We should have, you know, people writing all sorts of different things and the university not coming in and saying, this is the right one. Liberalism carves out domains of neutrality, but it's not foundationally neutral. Like, the reason we carve out those domains is in service of moral goods. Liberals are not neutral about human rights. Liberals are, are not neutral about the value of pluralism. We don't say, well, you know, there's pluralism and there's Nazi Germany, and we're neutral between them, right? Um, I've, I've got an episode called Mill versus Rawls, where I really, really unpack that one, so I won't descend on it here. But that's sort of the vision of freedom. It's not incompatible with negative freedom, by the way. Um, negative freedom is a nice sort of limiting principle, but it goes beyond negative freedom. It's negative freedom plus all this other stuff. Or negative freedom for a reason, right? Um, it's also a very demanding vision. It's demanding both of what we, we think people are capable of doing and the resources required for it. So there's a lot later on in the, the book on education and how important Mill thinks that is. And you can see how that falls out of this um, conception of freedom. Mill would, I think, say um, that contra many liberal philosophers running all the way through to like Isaiah Berlin, like not having resources, not having money is a constraint on freedom, right? So that's, it's a particular way of summing up resources, capacities, lack of limitations that people can have of pursuing their own good in their own way. And to the extent that people sort of have that, we say that they're free. And to the extent that they don't have that, we say that they're not free. And in that sort of painting a vision of what are the ultimate conditions for human flourishing and development and the progress of the human race sort of thing, right? In painting that vision, do you see, therefore, I, not only do I not think it's necessary, I think it would harm it to try and really explicitly define it in such a way as you would be able to say in any given circumstance, you know, objectively this person is free or not, to strip, like I say, all judgment out of it and just have it like an intellectual sausage maker where you feed it the data and you say, well, is this person free or not? Right? Actually, I don't think Mill sees it as a binary, so like how free? On a scale out of 10, how free is this person? Because, like, what's required for people to be able to make their own choices in their own way will change as society changes, and even sort of within a static time frame, you know, there will be sort of individual circumstances and so on that we haven't 
necessarily thought about. And I think it, it's much better to just paint a vision um, and give us a direction, which, like I say, rules a lot of possible interpretations out on both sides, but yes, has grey areas, um, than to try and, like, get it into, like, legalese. And freedom has always had that quality. Freedom has meant fricking everything, right? And there have been bad, very bad uses of freedom as well. Um, there is a fascist conception of freedom, right? Um, but freedom always tends to sort of resist the formalising the justice or rights discourse seems to lend itself so much more easily to, right? And I, I sort of fall on the side of freedom. Again, that doesn't mean it's just vacuous and open-ended and we're staring into the howling void. I think there are good and bad conceptions of freedom. And the good ones give you, I think Mill gives us a very clear sense of like what he's on about and like what the ultimate moral goal is here and why it's important and like why it's good for people. But it, it, it's the writ large version of pointing you in a direction and giving you a framework rather than giving you all the answers. And the fact that the framework doesn't give you all the answers doesn't mean that the framework doesn't do anything or that it can't actually be quite radical and quite socially transformative. And that sort of brings me back to the essay, because if you're thinking about, like, should we be thinking in terms of freedom or justice or both or rights or, yeah, whatever, how, how do you assess that question? Well, actually, what's weird is the essay I've been reading you offers a few points on how we might assess if a, if a conception of freedom is useful that I actually sort of agree with, but it seems to... So, it, it, just to go back to the middle paragraph that I just read you, quote, In short, notions of freedom, in order to be useful, need to incorporate many things. One, a notion of power. Two, consistent and universal application to all people. Da, 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 da. Three, a notion of time. Right? Um... And I'm going to go through one, two, and three there. Um, but I actually don't hate the evaluation criteria that are being proposed here. What I'm a bit confused by is, in short, notions of freedom. So is what's being asserted here that freedom specifically, or a political philosophy which centres freedom, has to answer these questions? Or is what's being asserted here that any value, or any conception of a value which we might place at the centre of our political philosophy has to answer these questions. I mean, they're not logically incompatible. You could assert the former with the latter as, like, a specific instance of it. But just the way it sets up seems to imply this is unique to freedom. And it's weird, because I would actually go through and... I would argue that in some ways, freedom is better placed to deal with these sorts of concerns than are rights, equality, justice, as sort of the most obvious alternatives to a central value to our political philosophy. So let's just run through them. Um, one, a notion of power. Yeah, I mean, 
power is inescapable in political analysis, right? And I think any mature political philosophy is going to have to reckon with power in a sustained way, by which I don't necessarily mean provide a sort of necessary and sufficient conditions of power. Like, I think the, the attempts to do so, and when you get into, like, Luke's and Foucault and all these theories of power, I think it's worth working through all of that. Um, but it, it should normatively be taken into account that power is a real thing, and, like, all of the different ways power can manufacture and reproduce itself. Here's, here's the thing, though. When I look at the broad scope of what freedom can mean and has meant, it, freedom much more is inseparably tied to power than any of the other big political values I've mentioned as alternatives. So, I mean, to take an obvious case, freedom as non-domination explicitly defines freedom in relation to power or to a particular type of power, right? That's absolutely at the core of what that theory is doing. Um, but more than that, um, I talked about sort of progressive conceptions of freedom in terms of the liberation of historically oppressed groups, or um, the freedom from want, the freedom from scarcity that, that motivated um, the, the building of the, the welfare state. Now, what, what's clearly being articulated there, although not always said explicitly, is freedom requires having power. I'd actually go further. I'd this is a. I'll, I'll just walk out over the cliff on this claim. I think you can't be powerless and free. That's that's perhaps a slightly too cute formulation, but that's something I'm increasingly thinking is just substantively correct. Freedom is in relation to power in that it's often said as it's preventing power being exercised over you. But it's also about being powerful yourself. So to take the case of the conception of freedom that motivated the creation of welfare states, freedom requires having a certain set of a minimum amount of resources. It requires access to health care. And, and having economic resources is a form of power. Right? Um... If we're talking about the dignity and standing, social standing, of historically marginalised groups, we're talking about empowering them. And those groups explicitly use that language. They talk about empowerment. And I think, like, we can sometimes take that as this big picture thing. I think there's a, a quite literal read about that, is that we need to be more socially powerful. We need to be able to challenge instances of discrimination, we need to be empowered to, to sort of call out um, double standards or structural oppression or counterproductive social norms. Um, and there, there just is a sense, to my mind, in which that's obviously true, in that the, the way, for instance, we treat men and women differently, perhaps subconsciously at some level, but that we, we sort of implicitly apply different standards, diminishes 
in a sense, the power that women have, at least relative to men. And you can frame it as constraining the power of men. You can also frame it as increasing the power of women, because after all, the best defense against power being exercised over you is to be powerful yourself, right? To not necessarily, you know, have to rely on others. And so to take the economic case, you know, simply having resources, i.e. power, is a sort of protection against people who might approach you with predatory intent, because you don't have to, you know, do things that you might find unethical or degrading in exchange for money. You can you can do it the other way and put protections on to say employers can't ask people to do something ethical or degrading, but you can also empower people to not have to make those choices in the first place. So freedom, I think, freedom is all about power. Um, now, there's a specific conception of freedom that tries to strip a lot of that out, that tries to take, you know, the historical tradition of freedom that's always related to power and say, actually, all we're really concerned about is non-constraint. And like at a formal legalistic level, to take the example from the essay, did the employer and the employee both agree to this this uh, contract of employment, right? Um, so there are versions of freedom that have power sort of stripped out of them. And I think the essay, um, or the author of the essay, is correct to be suspicious of those. But, you know, contrast that with justice or um, rights. I'm just thinking, like, take rules as two, two principles of justice. Um, not a lot of that really relates to power as directly in the same way, as far as I can see, the sort of egalitarian aspects of, like, the difference principle would have the effect of empowering people, but that's not the justificatory logic for how he got there. Same with rights. Rights will often have the effect of empowering people, but the justificatory logic is... I don't know, it's often as if rights are just these sort of freestanding metaphysical things that are just like the fundamental constants of the universe or something. Um, I, don't, I don't think anything like that actually exists. I think if you're going to defend rights, it has to be on a much more sort of modest basis as a sort of recognition of fundamental interests. That's another story. But my, my first take would be freedom is all about power in a way that other political concepts aren't necessarily, and there's a historic reason for that, in that if you do a sort of abstracted genealogy of justice, justice is something that is bestowed from on high. Freedom is something that, that, that rises from the bottom. Justice, what's our genealogy of justice? I'm not saying this is what happened historically, but what's our genealogy of justice? Our genealogy of justice is People live in small tribes, they eventually come together to, to form larger communities, and some sort of strong man will, a woman maybe, will become in charge, and they will sort of exercise their domination over everyone. But then the strong man will sort of realise, well, hey, in order to get the most out of this, I'd kind of like it if you guys weren't like all killing and stealing from each other, so I'm going to make and enforce some basic rules 
to like because they're in my interest, but it will actually have a beneficial impact for all of you. And then the fact that I enforce those rules becomes a justification for me holding power in the first place, right? That's kind of like your genealogy of justice. And the thing about the genealogy of justice is that's probably not how it happened historically, but that makes sense as a genealogy. The thing about freedom is how freaking weird the genealogy is, because where does freedom comes from? Freedom comes from slaves, right? Freedom comes from the experience of the lowest, the most disrespected, the most degraded members of society. What, what is freedom? Where did that? It's, it's taking the psychological experience of man mission, of saying to a slave, you are no longer a slave, you are now this new category of person called a freed person, and making that experience, using it as like a metaphor for what society as a whole is trying to achieve. That's that's weird, right? That's a weird thing for a society to do. And it's sort of one of the paradoxes or like central things that sort of needs explaining in big scare quotes the West is why we made our central value based around the experience of the people we most despise. So, you know, go read Orlando Patterson's uh, Freedom or listen to my podcast with him for sort of how you make sense of that. But the genealogy of freedom is all about an emotional, spiritual even, reaction to moving through different systems of power the genealogy of justice is something that power does, if that makes sense. That might all be a bit weird and abstract, um, but that's just to say I can tell a story in my head for why freedom is intimately concerned with power in a way that others aren't. I'm not saying that story's like literally historically true, um, and just saying it comes from different places, and if you sort of try to think in genealogy terms, you get very, very different stories. And so I think it sort of, it does make sense in an abstract way. Um, so that's, that's power. The next one is, quote, consistent and universal application to all people, parenthesis, i.e. all people's perspectives should be taken when evaluating whether a situation embodies freedom or not. End parenthesis. Um, okay, so the nitpicker in me is going to say the, the parenthesis and the opening statement aren't the same thing. You can have consistent and universal application of a rule that doesn't take into account all people's perspectives. So we can say um, any form of private consenting sexual activity is to be legally tolerated, and you can apply that rule consistently to all people, but it might not reflect everybody's views, and many people might and do indeed feel that that rule is a grotesque injustice. Um, so that's just a nitpick. Um, but more generally, all people's perspectives should be taken when evaluating whether a situation embodies. Let's take out freedom and just put a particular value. So in other words, if we're looking at what's a good value to put at the centre of our um, political 
philosophy, um, is it one that's capable of, like, taking into account all people's perspectives? Well, here's the thing. Freedom doesn't become untethered from a felt lived experience in the way that other political values do. By a sort of classic natural conception of rights, they're just sort of there, and like, whether you think you have a right or not is kind of like, irrespective of the fact, like, you know, I can say I have a right to be driven around by a chauffeur in a limousine, and people will just go, no, that's not a right you possess, as if there's like a, a, an objective list you can check somewhere. And there are lists, right? There's like the, you know, the Declaration of Rights and so on, there's the Bill of Rights, and people will use them. As if, as if it's like a scientific description of the world. People, I, I have a right to be driven around by a chauffeur in a limousine. I don't think that's right. Let me let me check the Bill of Rights. Uh, no, mate. Uh, you got free speech. You got you, you you get to keep guns. You got some weird stuff about how British soldiers can't be put in your house. Sure, whatever. Um, arbitrary arrest. Yeah, no, sorry, mate. No chauffeurs and limousines. Right. In other words, I think, and, and if you look at um, Rawls or Nozak, their conceptions of justice don't really have a subjective element to them. A society is just or it isn't, right? Freedom is something you can define in those ways. I think you can sort of descriptively say this person is more free than that one. But freedom is something people feel. People feel free, and I think one of the big paradoxes of, like, modern, what, what, what should we say, liberal capitalist representative democracies, that's a decent shorthand for the regimes under which we live, one feature of them is that according to the societally dominant conception of freedom, the people in them are free, but they don't feel free. Only about a third of people say that they feel free if you poll them on it. That's just interesting in, in, in me. And so you can say, well, that's a problem with freedom in that it's not delivering the goods. And I would say, well, that means we're using the wrong conception of freedom. When freedom becomes untethered from people's experiences of feeling free, it means it's in need of revision and reevaluation. And so maybe, hey, just maybe, instead of uh, attacking the sort of libertarian idea, you know, the debate me bros on the right who talk about free speech a lot and freedom from having to take a vaccine and all of that. Um, th there's two ways we can go. We can say, no, you're wrong. It's not freedom. It's, it's justice or welfare. We can have a competition between values or we can debate them and say, what you think freedom is, isn't what freedom is. And you're getting it wrong. And here's a better idea, right? We can have a competition within the values. And so if you want a conception that sort of is always going to have a foot in how people feel about it, I actually think freedom is better placed to do that. Even, you know, in our current age, in which a particular not very helpful conception of freedom reigns supreme, it still has that self-correction mechanism. There's still always the ability to go to people and say, do you feel free right now? Okay, what 
changes in your life would you need in order to feel free? And people will say different things, but I think on the basis of what they're saying, there's quite a rich, and I think you'd end up some, with something not a million miles from Mel. I think people want to be able to determine their own lives, and I think they it's not just an act, it's a process of self-development and so on. And for that, you need education, healthcare, and power, basically, right? And that brings me to the, the final one, a notion of time. So I do agree. Too often, people who discuss or defend freedom fall short of this, choosing to zoom in on tiny atomistic acts um, from their own perspective or the perspective of classes of people similar to themselves. Completely right. Um, I think that's a liability of all forms of political thinking, in that we can go with our most liberatory instincts when it comes to ourselves or people like us, and then we can go with our most authoritarian instincts when it comes to people who are not like us. I explored this quite a bit in my last episode, so I won't belabor it. Um, I think that's a quality almost any political um, sort of value is capable of having, in that we'll apply it quite selectively. I think it is certainly the case um, with how the sort of libertarian right will use freedom, in that its freedom becomes a dominant value when it's a restriction on me or people like me, and it's not really considered at all when, you know, people not like me are facing police brutality say, or systemic racism, say, or, you know, the horrors of the American incarceral state, say. So, I'll definitely agree that freedom at its worst, or just a bad conception of freedom, or the, the, the idea of freedom occupied by the political right, which I think we've ceded to them, and sometimes the political left as well can be guilty of that, um, definitely has this problem of reasoning from very specific acts seen from a specific point of view. I would make the case, though, that freedom at its best is more able to deal with the issue of political time than other conceptions, such as justice or rights which might be rival candidates for putting at the centre of our political philosophy. What do I mean by that? Well, like I said, Mill's conception of freedom has time built into it. It's about people developing and improving themselves, and it's about the process by which people doing that create the conditions in which society can improve. Like I said about the harm principle, the harm principle is good because it's situated in time, because it's it's a framework in which society can progress, right? Justice and rights tend to be much more static than that. This is These are the rights that you have, and it's just a sort of one-time, one-shot thing. Here they are, and you know, people make lists of them, 
and you can go read them. Now, I think the better lists of rights often have a degree of sort of flex and ch change within them. So, for instance, a prohibition on torture needn't, and I think might, might perhaps be stronger, to not try and detail every last instance of what we think is torture, because as with the case of um, solitary confinement, our understandings of those things change. But nonetheless, the list itself is pretty static. And, you know, when you look at, say, Rawls's principles of justice, you get the feeling that these are just, like, freestanding things that, like, he thinks he's discovered almost like you might discover um, a scientific, like, a, a, one of the sort of Newton's three laws or something like that. I'm not saying he thinks about it exactly that way. Um, but you get the feeling that does Rawls think 300 years from now, 3,000 years from now, those principles will still be operative in the same way, that there will have been no need to revise them. There's a little bit towards the end of the theory of justice where he implies that he doesn't, but then there's some other bits of theory of justice where he kind of implies, particularly the stuff about ideal theory, where he implies that they do. And there's a few problems with that. One is this idea I've been sort of referencing throughout, that the people applying your rules will have information that you don't. And the further you extend the time horizon, the more information they're going to have that you don't. And I think it also speaks to this concern about seeing the world through like a particular perspective and ignoring the suffering of others whose perspective that you don't share, in that if you're just going to say these are the rules sort of done and they're kind of like time invariant, to what extent is that a product of your place and time? And to what extent will you have brought along various prejudices from your place and time that a more enlightened age might regard as horrific, right? Um, it's always going to be in a state of flux. And you see this with rights, like systems of rights are continually getting revised and people say, okay, we need to add that, we need to take out that. Um, in some ways, it's better to have the, the, the centre of the political philosophy itself set up with a certain degree of flex, set up self-consciously seeing itself as a structure in which improvement in material conditions and in our understanding of ourselves can continue to improve, right, based on imperfect knowledge and recognising as the liberalism of Mill and Hobson and Hobhouse so self-consciously does that, you know, you yourself are probably feeding into that assumptions that will come to be rejected by future ages. It's a snapshot of a moving process. I think freedom, like, deals with the problem at its best much better than other sort of political values which we might put forward as plausible candidates for the centre of our political philosophy. And I think taking that um, time-based, let's just call it progressive, element has, out of liberalism has really weakened liberalism. I think that you don't get, there's not a lot in rules about social progress. It's not a theme there. Um, 
there's not a lot about personal development, really. It's not a theme there. And I think their removal weakens the theory. I think by not having those themes in contemporary justice-based liberalism, we actually remove a number of powerful arguments for a pluralistic and tolerant society. We want a pluralistic and tolerant society because it's better for people, it's nicer to, to sort of be able to make your own choices and be treated fairly, but also because by consigning people to poverty, by subjecting them to oppression, um, by not giving them the resources, either economic or educational, to self-develop, we're, we're just throwing away the advances that they might make but for those constraints. You know, how many Einsteins died in the cornfields of the Deep South? How many Shakespeare's has humanity lost? Utterly preventably, because we made a choice that certain groups of people shouldn't be given the opportunity to, to learn to read or write, right? How many great scientific advances, how many great works of art or literature or philosophy are we in the business of throwing away right now because we allow preventable institutions like homelessness to persist? We allow levels of poverty and discrimination that we can choose to at least consequentially mitigate, right? Um, and that's all a rhetoric of freedom, I think. Freedom as that open-ended self-development can give you that sort of vision. And I think it's interesting that as we've we've stopped talking about freedom, we've stopped talking about that vision. We've stopped locating our arguments in time. The idea is just we get the principles of justice or we get the schema of rights, and then we just apply them. And the only development through time is bringing the real world into greater and greater conformity with that objective, or seemingly objective, schema. Okay, so, to recap, I've tried to sketch out, in very general terms, what I think the conception of liberty is that On Liberty is offering us, and that the harm principle is supposed to be an instrument in helping us to, to realise. Um, I've gone through why some people find this account unsatisfying or dangerous even, and some of the things people think um, a, a, a central value should be doing that apparently freedom isn't. And I've given you my arguments. You know, you might not agree with me, but I've given you my arguments of why I think in some ways it's not just that these things aren't unique vulnerabilities to freedom that other political values don't possess. I think these things are vulnerabilities to any political value, and that freedom at its best is actually better or more capable of addressing those sorts of concerns than are others. So that's sort of 
I think, a plausible sketch of what I think is a good political philosophy. One final question is, is it coherent, though? I think that's that's a perfectly sort of, you know, I've been arguing very much on the practical side of what's the work these ideas are doing in the world, but I think internal coherence is, is a pretty important question, and, like, you know, this is something an account should be able to, to answer um, if we're going to call it good political philosophy. So one question raised by the article is, is like, is there something like incoherent about freedom insofar as we can promote freedom by restricting freedom? So in other words, we we promote freedom by telling one individual hey, you can't go around telling everyone else what to do. We're going to restrict your freedom. And by so restricting freedom, we somehow get more freedom? Wait, how does that work? Um, I think this... I think I can give you a model for this that is just pretty clear and removes that seeming contradiction altogether. That might seem like a bit of an arrogant claim, but this, this makes 100% total sense and is really simple to me. So, consider by analogy utilitarianism. At a very simple model, classical utilitarianism has two models, a good and a maximization, right? The good is this thing we call utility, and I'm not going to go into trying to define it, but there's a good we call utility. That's part one. Part two is we maximize so as to get the most of utility. And again, you can go into what do you mean by maximize? Do you mean highest mean, highest median, highest total amount? Not getting into any of that. There's a good and there's a maximization, right? Now, in some cases, we will get more of that good overall by diminishing it in a specific instance for one person. So utility, let's just say for this argument, is, is a good that's located within individuals. We're not going to do some sort of social ontology where we say there's like societal utility. It's just individual happiness minus suffering, something like that, right? Now, let's take the case of progressive taxation. Let's say I can take... Um, a million pounds from someone who has 10 million pounds and give a thousand pounds each to a bunch of people who are on the edge of starvation, right? Um, have I diminished the utility of the millionaire? Yeah, a bit, maybe. Like, he might not, or she might not like being taxed. There might be a bit of utility loss there from, like, resentment. And yeah, maybe they can't get that third yacht, you know? There's, there's, a, there's a small utility loss. Is there a utility gain from someone on the edge of starvation getting £1,000? Pretty clearly, right? Is that gain bigger than the loss from the millionaire? This isn't true by definition, but I think it's intuitive that it is, right? And then you multiply that by the number of people who gained from it, and it's pretty clear that by reducing liberty for one person, reducing utility, sorry, getting ahead of myself, reducing in a, you know, manageable way utility for one person, you've increased the aggregate amount of the utility that the individuals in that society have. You see where I'm going with this, right? I'm not saying this is exactly how Mill thinks about it. Um, in fact, it isn't. It's just like, this is the most simple model you can put for, like, making this make sense, and then you can complicate the model further. But let's just do it with the simple model first. 
let's say there's a good called freedom, which is pursuing your own good in your own way. And let's just say, I don't think this is true, but let's just say that you can sort of measure that on a scale from one to ten. How much is that person able to pursue their own good in their own way, right? Um, and then let's just do a similar thing. You've got one despotic ruler who can act however he pleases and is always, like, rounding people up and locking them up without charges and doing all sorts of tyrant stuff, basically. We put some basic constraints around his action, thus diminishing his ability to pursue his own good in his own way. Say it falls from a 9 out of 10 to a 7 out of 10, right? However, then the freedom of every other individual might go up from, like, 2 to, to 5, right? So that you get a bigger increase and for more people. You could actually argue... The, the exact same calculation applies for the redistributive taxation. Does the millionaire who loses a tenth of their income have some diminishment in their ability to, you know, pursue their own good in their own way? Yeah, sure, that's there, right? Do the people who are taken out of being on the edge of starvation have... Um, an equivalent or greater increase in their ability to pursue their own good in their own way. I'd argue that they do, right? So that, that to me, just, like, makes total sense. Um, now, once you complicate the picture, it gets more complicated, so you can start saying, are, are there properties of freedom that are collective when we talk about political freedom, like democracy, say, that's clearly something where the, the, the thing that's being maximised is in a collective. But just individual autonomous freedom um, seems to me there's plenty of cases where you can reduce it for one person and in a way that raises the overall levels. Again, good and a maximisation function. That's a very simplified thing, and if I were to try to build that into my overall political philosophy, I'd have to do lots of provisos or whatever. But hopefully that's just, like, a clear, intuitive explanation of, like, why that isn't a paradox. So, the final point I want to make, just on the basis of, like, the, the, the text I've been engaging with that essay is it closes um, with, like, the danger, the, quote, easily inverted, end quote, sort of nature of freedom. Like, it's dangerous because it's so easily misconstructed. And perhaps that quality that I've been identifying of, like, it, it isn't as amenable to, like, here's what this actually entails in every specific instance, is kind of the problem, like what I think is the, the good thing about it, is actually the bad thing about it, in that people can take it and then utterly, you know, get the, the, the wrong idea about what this means. Um, there's this fear in a lot of modern political philosophy that people will use their theory quote-unquote wrong. And it's a new addition. It's not there in a lot of the history of political thought, and not quite to the same degree, or it doesn't have the same hue and tenor and character and degree of moral urgency to it. Um, here's the thing. That people will interpret the theory wrong, that never really goes away. People will always have rival conceptions, 
And if you try to just lock something in in advance, people can and they will just disagree with you, you know? Um, now, I sort of have a whole thesis about where this comes from. And I think it comes from World War II and a misreading of the causes of that conflict and a misleading of the sort of idea, a misreading of the sort of ideological foundations that led to the Holocaust and stuff like that. And I think there's this project that you get uh, with like a lot of the works of Karl Popper, um, the Free Society and its enemies, a lot of works like Totalitarian Democracy. Um, the, the, and even to a degree, you see this in Rawls, I think, you definitely see it in Isaiah Berlin, where it's like we've got to reformulate liberalism better and stronger, such that our absolute core principles are sort of left under no dispute, and that no one could possibly misinterpret them ever again. I'm not sure that what happened in Nazi Germany was people misinterpreting liberalism, I'm not sure we should see it as a failure or an excess of democracy, but that is how people read it, and the idea was like, this can never happen again, and the way it's never going to happen again is through political philosophy. Now, go see my episode if you want me to really defend that game claim positive and negative liberty, because you might just think, oh, Toby, that sounds like bullshit, And but I do make the argument at length elsewhere, and hey, you might still think it's bullshit after listening to that, but I'm not just throwing that out there. But there is this fear of, like, what if we say something and someone gets the wrong idea, and, like, I think we need a bit more political courage. I think people are going to get the wrong idea. People have the wrong idea. You know, as I'm recording now, um... A lot of Trump supporters are taking a horse dewormer as a supposed miracle cure against the coronavirus. I don't think being more analytically precise in our political philosophy is going to do anything about that. Um, that's perhaps a little snarky. Here's the thing, though. If what you're saying is that... Part of the ways we assess a political philosophy, one of the criteria we use to say, is this a good political philosophy, or is this a bad political philosophy, is something to do with its liabilities. It's something to do with, could people, because it perhaps doesn't have a precise definition, use it to do something really heinous that we haven't intended? Um... If that's the criteria we're using, one thing I want to make really clear is that is an empirical criteria, right? When we're talking about ideas and philosophies that have existed in the world for a while, we can ask, to what extent do people getting convinced by these ideas lead them to A or B, to, to, to doing things that we want them to do or things that we don't want them to do? Right? Because I think it definitely is true that pure negative economic libertarian conceptions of freedom have often put themselves forward as the sort of inner citadel against authoritarianism and tyranny. Um, but in actual fact, people who really believe in those ideas have quite often been quite happy 
to not just work with political authoritarians, but defend them explicitly using that conception of liberty. So you see General Pinochet or Suharto in Indonesia, like, yes, they're pretty tough guys, but you've got to understand the wonderful stuff they're doing for free markets, don't you see? Right? So that's definitely true. The thing is, the, 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 the arguments from Berlin onwards for that ideal of freedom is that any other ideal of freedom, the so-called positive ideals of freedom, I'm a positive liberty theorist, if you haven't guessed, um, they lead they lead or sort of naturally imply or point you in the direction of authoritarianism. That claim's harder to make historically. There is the odd thing I can think of, um, but a sort of liberal mill conception has been at the heart of a lot of really positive developments in the world. And to the extent that people have held it who've done unpleasant things, they usually haven't used that conception to justify it, not in the same way as the economic libertarian conception of freedom has been used to justify political authoritarianism. Now, that is a very big historical argument, right? But I just do want to make the case that it's a claim about history, it's a claim about what has happened, and it's a claim that, in a sense, is empirical. But the way the claim always gets trotted out, that's not how that criteria is being used. It's being used as, I can imagine that someone would misinterpret this. Well, if we're going to go with, like, potential unintended consequences, people, you know, quote-unquote, misinterpreting a theory as, a, as something we're judging it by, like, we need to be a lot more rigorous in that judgment than just, well, someone could mean this by it. Well, yes, but do they? Like, if that is going to be our criteria, let's be rigorous about how we analyse it within that criteria. Okay, so, let's try and bring this all together. Just like I did two different interpretations of, like, is the harm principle good or bad political philosophy? I've done two interpretations of is Mill's conception of freedom good or bad political philosophy. And what I think's interesting here is I've given you two different views. You can decide which one you like. But you see what I mean? That we are appealing to different criteria in how in how we 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 think about this. Um and let me try and, like, be explicit about, like, what my criteria are. And maybe, maybe you know, someone listening to this will just think, actually, that's completely the same as my criteria. The difference is somewhere else. But here's, like, my sort of big theoretical foundation here, or, like, my starting point for thinking about this, is... I think when we have these debates about what a political value ought to mean, um, I don't think anyone these days really believes in, like, a sort of platonic theory of the forms, where there is, like, a pure form of liberty up in the heavens somewhere. Nonetheless, we debate it and discuss it as if there is something sort of to be found at the bottom of it. Um, and I don't think there is. Um, 
I, I, I don't think, you know, if we all debate and discuss justice and we exchange all these arguments, that, 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 that there is something discoverable and replicatable and knowable at the bottom of all of that. Um, I don't think these arguments ever really cohere to any final point. Um, there's not a there there, I don't think. Um, or if it is, like that in itself would be a really weird claim that would need a lot of backing up. These are, you know, essentially contestable concepts, and that means what it says. They're not contingently contestable. They're not temporarily being contested. They are by their nature being contested. And to follow Wittgenstein's adage, don't think, look, or at least start by looking. And what you'll see are patterns, connections, recurring themes. That the fact that there's not a final answer doesn't mean it's just the howling void and anything can mean anything. Words have substantive and rich meanings, right? But it'll never settle. You'll, there'll never be a moment where it's like, yes, we've got it. That's what, that's what justice is. Now, I think most people do accept that. You know, I can imagine someone listening, going, yes, Toby, I know Plato isn't ontologically right. Just work through it with me. So what does that mean that we're doing when we debate about what liberty or justice means, or which is a better concept for that matter? I think we can ask different questions about them. Political philosophies are, are systematized political belief systems. They, they aim for a greater degree of coherence and sort of internal sort of structuring than, say, a political ideology does, which might be looser and more diffuse. But it's nonetheless still a constellation of political values, a particular meaning of freedom sewed together with meanings of progress or development, say, right? Now, there are when, when we're assessing those constellations of political values as objects and sort of saying, is this a good object or a bad object? There are a lot of questions, questions plural, that we can ask of it. We can ask, is it internally coherent? We can also ask, is it externally coherent? Does it line up with other things that we think we have good reasons to, to believe about the world? I think we also can ask, um, do they work in practice, so for like adjacent structures, like supporting the supporting clusters around the core values, so in this case, like the harm principle, we can ask, do those adjacent structures actually help people promote the core concepts? Are they pathways that people will intuitively travel down? Um, are they formulas for thinking about politics that will make are political disagreements more productive or less productive? Um, now, you can ask all of those questions, and in the same way as I started and said you can do a historical read or a theological read, and these are just different questions and you will get different answers, these are different questions. That's a point I really want to insist on. All those different questions I laid out 
they're a different question one can ask of this constellation of, of, of values that we call a political philosophy, right? Um, they will not always have the same answers, and they will proceed by different methodologies. Like I said, if we're asking what are the liabilities in terms of unintended consequences of this theory, that is to an extent a historical empirical question. We will be bringing historical and empirical tools to bear in answering it. We will be bringing a very different set of tools to bear in asking is it internally coherent? And the answer might be yes for no and one for the and, and no for the other, right? So, just as there's a pluralism of values, liberty, equality, justice, and a pluralism of meanings within any of those, there's also a pluralism of ways we can assess our account of a value and our account of the structures which substantiate and realise that value. And these different ways of assessing values will not necessarily cohere to a single final answer. That's sort of more concretely what I mean when I say I don't think there's a there, there. And I don't think there's one criteria we can set up as like the be-all and end-all. I mean, you can, but I don't know how useful that is, right? I think we're, we're just as we're concerned with different values, we're concerned with social welfare and we're concerned with liberty, we're also concerned with different things that we'd like our political values to do. We want them to be coherent, we want them to be true as far as they imply empirical claims, which they often do. You know, we don't want them to have these contingencies. Blah, 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 blah. Right? So I think the best we can hope for when we're assessing is this a good or a bad political philosophy, is not like we found the, the, the right answer. It's, it's are there areas of overlap between, you know, are, does, do we, do, do, does it meet a lot? Can we say it's good from quite a few of these different perspectives? That, that, that might all sound a bit big and like postmodern and like scary, but just think about how you might have different criteria that don't ever fully converge in buying a car or in moving house, right? You know, is this a good house from is, is purchasing this house good or bad, right? There's not it doesn't cohere to a final point often, right? You, you, people will often like write out a checklist of things that they want. You know, good school district, price, does it have three bedrooms? All of that sort of thing, right? Now, an economist might try and reduce all that down to like a utility function, but real people very rarely think about it that explicitly, and I'm not sure how useful it is to try. Um, so you could try and formalize formalize like all the different criteria I'm running through here. I think for me, it's often enough just to be aware of the different types of appeals that we're making, because we can be reasonably objective when we narrow down what type of argument we're appealing to, right? This sort of like pluralist way of thinking that, that I espouse has some quite hard objectivity within it once you're within the framework of a particular system. So, like, 
you know, if you're going to ask what has been the, the sort of actual historical impact of these ideas, there are you can be quite rigorous and quite objective within that domain, meaning you can there are sort of rules of the game that people will agree to, and there are valid and invalid moves within that space. So this is perhaps where I differ from someone like Michael Frieden, that Michael Frieden would definitely, I think, endorse the essential contestability of values, he definitely endorse the pluralism of values, and I think he definitely also endorse a sort of pluralism of ways of assessing our structures that give those values meaning. I think he'd always, though, want to sort of insist on the sort of unknowability and the changeability I'm in many ways much happier to, to talk about how concretely we can make statements about political beliefs being good or bad once we're within a particular framework in which we might assess them. I just don't think there's one framework. Um, but we can get quite hard answers. And I think even if it's not like pure science or true by definition, that you can clearly say that some things are much more internally coherent than other things. You can clearly say that, that a, a, a system is either explicitly or implicitly making empirical claims, and we can assess whether those empirical claims are, are true or not. And some people might have often already gotten off the boat already. Some people, I think, might be sort of thinking, I don't really disagree with what you're saying, Toby, but you're kind of like over-egging the pudding, or whatever the saying is. You're kind of wringing a lot out of it as if you're saying something quite profound, and actually you're just kind of stating the obvious in a convoluted way. I actually agree. Nothing I'm saying here is, like, profound. It's all just quite obvious when you think about it. I think, though, we often proceed in political philosophy as if we're doing something else. Um, we can often, in philosophy debates, political philosophy debates, do what I think of as justification jumping. So we make our appeals with reference to several of these standards that I've been referencing, without really stating that these are different standards and that they may have different answers. So we say something like, I think the harm principle is good or bad for these reasons, but the reasons are appealing to different things that op operate within different frameworks of objectivity. Um, and so I think we should aim in any argument, and I'm trying to do it in this one, maybe I haven't done it the best, to be explicit about our standard. What are we, in virtue of what, would our claim that this is a good or a bad philosophic system be correct and outline what the objective, you know, within that particular closed system, what objective standards would have to be met for that claim that this is a good or a bad political philosophy to be right and then move to the next standard. Okay, so that's sort of the sort of how you conceptualize how you might have that conversation why if i'm correct and that there are a plurality of criteria for assessing a political philosophy and labeling it good or bad why does that mean that like i've been saying throughout we should we shouldn't 
aim for a time-static theory that solves all our problems for us in advance, and that removes the element of judgment from the people who might be applying it, right? Or to put it differently, why, as I maintain, is it good to build in a certain amount of expected judgment on the part of the people who will be applying your theory, and more like set up a framework for them to think about it within. I think two reasons. Number one is because these different criteria will never really cohere to anything final, what you'll get is areas of overlap. The best that you'll have is a sort of sketch. Something like what I read to you from Mill. This is, this is the outline of what I'm saying is morally valuable in the world, or the political good that, that we, will, we will strive for. And that sketch doesn't have, it can't have, enough specificity to be capable of really passing these, like, case-by-case judgments. I don't think. And two, um, because having that degree of judgment built in makes it adaptable to change. Simply saying, this is the set of rules, and the only form of social progress we're interested in is bringing society into greater and greater coherence with these rules. Um, It's locked, it's it's rigid, it's brittle even. Um, The the types of evidence we will draw on in utilising our criteria for assessing a political theory will change. You know, I said before... Um, will this have unintended consequences, is sort of an empirical historical question. Well, as history develops, we will get more data, and that might change our assessment. So the criteria by which we're doing the judging will sort of flex and change throughout time, and other parts of our philosophy might change. Think of the, the huge, over the last few generations, you know, changes we've had on how we think about gender roles, right? And it's good that it's changed, and there will be changes like that in the future. And we want our system to be able to absorb that. Because for all I've talked about judgment, for all I've talked about essential contestability, for all I've talked about, like, pluralism, this, that, and the other, we want structures that are fairly stable over time. We want something like the liberty principle. We want stuff like, you know, my example of, like, the rules of how trials proceed, because people can get used to them and apply them. We're never going to be able to make our judgments purely from scratch each time. We're never going to be able to, to, like, think through all the consequences of our actions and, like, do a sort of first principles from, from first values analysis of every single one of the thousands of decisions we make every day. We can't do that. You want something that is permanent and stable over time. You want something that will last. So we do want these these systems. We do want these political philosophies. We do want these guiding principles and overarching moral aims to which, you know, we aspire to instantiate in society or bring our society towards. We do want them. 
but they have to, it has to be a middle ground. It can't just be the howling void of its pure judgment every time. But I don't think we, we're ever going to get something static and permanent that, that makes our decision for us over an infinite time horizon. Because the future will change, and people in the future will know things that we don't. And so when you think about that, and you think about, okay, you know, in, in with that in mind, and with that sort of overall vision of, like, what I think a good political sort of philosophy is... Um, I think the liberty principle is good, actually. It's really good. Um, people really like to use it, even without realising that they are. It helps people make better decisions, and it helps them disagree more productively. Now look, it might seem like a small thing to get people debating within the same simple, not uber-specified, like framework where they they're disagreeing about what harms are and they they will disagree and they're not going to come to any final answer on what harms are that is a huge accomplishment both in terms of getting them out of the historic norm which i think is does this disgust me right in in changing that but also in like most political debates people are just like completely completely like i had like, I was talking to someone in a MAGA Facebook group, which, for my sins, I do occasionally, God knows why, um, and I made some points about, like, the vaccine and so on, and they just jumped straight over to, to, to the cult of pedophiles in the White House and how they're satanic, like, not even remotely connected, right? Um, and, like, okay, I'm slamming on the far right because they, they can and do deserve it, but, like, we do the same thing. Like, often, like, just just track some actual political discussions that I had, even, like, political debates or, like, newspaper broadsheets trading points. They're not even remotely in the same framework, right? To get people narrowed down to, does this harm others? And, like, get them to, like, reliably be able to replicate that is absolutely incredible, right? It's really, like, I don't think anyone uses rules that way. The liberty principle really has changed the world for the better. Um, indeed, I think many of our recent debates, we've ended up having a much worse debate and worse outcomes because we've not tried to use the liberty principle. For instance, COVID and COVID restrictions, we've just done liberty versus welfare. They say liberty. We say welfare, and we both just talk past each other. You know, I'm not going to say persuade everyone, it certainly wouldn't, but could we have had a more productive debate if instead of just saying welfare, we said, to what extent are people, by say not wearing a mask or not getting vaccinated, what extent are they harming others? Set up that criteria in advance. Now, you... I, I think we could have had a much more more productive debate about that, and possibly even better outcomes, although certainly not everyone would have been convinced. Now, can it lead potentially to bad outcomes? Um, I, I think this is saying it reliably leads people to, to 
realise our values better. I think it reliably leads people to better outcomes than, say, the discussed principle, which I think in the circumstances of the world is is sort of the 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 main alternative. And I think historically it has a good track record and that it's coherent intellectually with the values that we're ultimately trying to to promote with it. Um and I think finally, finally, to my point about like allowing a degree of judgment, allowing a degree of flex and ability to mutate through time has really enabled it to do so. It's been around for a while now, and it's still doing real work in the world. And I think it wouldn't have been able to if it really specified. I think if Mill really tried to do a this is X, Y, and Z of harm, he'd have come up with some good stuff and some very distinctively Victorian stuff. I think he benefited in terms of the impact of his political philosophy, in terms of its durability, by not. I think it's been infinitely strengthened by leaving harm somewhat open-ended. And freedom? Well, there I think I have to be more cautious. I think I've appealed to the durability, the intuitiveness, the use value of the liberty principle. I think then I have to cede that that conception of liberty that initially animated it has not survived in quite the same way. I think I can point to a historical track record of it doing good in the world. I think I can defend it in terms of internal coherence. I think I can sort of offer a theoretic justification for it. I guess the question for me is what would happen if we tried? You know, what would happen if the left did start making arguments in terms of liberty again? And I really don't know. Like, I'm not sure Part of me says it's worth at least giving a go, but of course there's liabilities there. There's, of course, the unintended consequences. There's also just a, would we be risking doing something less effective? I don't know. I personally like liberty better. As a consequentialist, I think what we're ultimately trying to do is secure the conditions and structures necessary for human well-being and flourishing over a long time horizon as a progressive being, something like that. And I like that liberty has more built-in room for change. I like that it is both a description and a lived felt experience. I like that it relates to power, and I like that it, at its best, it, it points us in the direction and provides us with a structure for social progress. Is that a conception of liberty that we can bring back? Or is it one that's merely of more historical interest? I don't know, and I'll leave you with that question.